You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Book of Malachi. If you're curious where that is, go to the Gospels. And it's the book right before it. So it's the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And we're going to begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 into 3, verse 1. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And this morning we desire to connect with you through it. Lord, we desire to hear from you. Lord, we desire to just hear your words in our lives, but also, Lord, that you would apply these words, that we would see how these ancient words apply to our lives today. Lord, would you enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might understand, that we might see glorious things in your word. And Lord, we pray that you would transform us and change us through this process for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. And throughout the Bible, what we see is that the Christian life is to be one that is characterized by progress. So the Christian life is to be one that's characterized by progress, moving forward, taking new ground, experiencing victory in different areas of our lives. That's how it should be ideally. But what about when things aren't ideal? Because we don't live in a world that's perfect, right? And we as people are flawed. And so although this is the ideal, there are times when it doesn't work that way. The ideal is that it should be always characterized by progress, taking new ground, experiencing victory. But what about when things aren't ideal? What about when instead of progress, you regress? What about those times when instead of victory, you experience defeat? What about when instead of moving forward, you find yourself sliding back into old ways and old habits and sins even? What about instead of moving forward and trusting the Lord, what if you find yourself trusting him less? What about those times when you regress? Maybe there are some of you here today and you're experiencing just a season of great vitality and victory in your spiritual life. I hope you are genuinely. But I would venture to guess that there are some of you here today who are experiencing the opposite of that. You're struggling Uh, Maybe you've grown lukewarm. Maybe there was a time in your life where you were really passionate about the things of God, but that's not right now. You're not there right now anymore. And the question is, if you are in a, a, a good place right now, how do you stay in that good place? How do you keep that fire burning, so to say? How do you stay passionate? How how do you make sure that you stay in that place? And on the other hand, if you have backslidden or regressed spiritually, if you've become lukewarm, how do you rekindle that passion? How do you get back to the place of spiritual health and vitality? That's what we'll be looking at today as we look at the prophet Malachi. That question is very much tied to his message uh, that he shares in this book. The title of today's message is Rekindling the Complacent Heart. Rekindling the Complacent Heart. And as we look at the life and message of Malachi, it addresses a very relevant question for all of us, and that is this. How do you rekindle passion for God when you've backslidden or become lukewarm? And we're gonna see three things that are really key in this regard here in this book, and here's what they are. 
Number one, we need an assurance of God's love. We need assurance of God's love. Secondly, we need an awareness of our shortcomings. And thirdly, we need an understanding about Jesus. So assurance of God's love, awareness of our shortcomings, and an understanding about Jesus. We're currently doing a series called Remember the Prophets. And, uh, and we've been doing this for the last eight weeks. This is the eighth week of this series. And I was gonna tell you today that it's our final week, but it's not. We're gonna have a bonus next week before we get into our next study, which is gonna be James. The reason is because we're having a, a guest speaker come next week. Uh, from Ravencrest Bible College up in Estes Park. And he uh, asked, you know, hey, what can I speak on? I told him, hey, we're doing this series. And he said, I love the idea of that series. I want to do one too. And I said, okay, well, here's the ones we haven't done. And so he's going to do Haggai next week. So you don't want to miss that. Invite a friend. It's going to be amazing. So we've been doing this series, Remember the Prophets. The idea for the series comes from James chapter 5, verse 10, where James says to remember the prophets and look to them as examples of perseverance in the face of suffering and hardship. In other words, what James is telling us is when you look at the prophets, when you study their writings, he says, I don't want you to just think about what they said and what are written in these books. I want you to think about the way that they lived, who they were as people and how they are examples their lives in their lives for how we are to live today. So for the past few weeks, this is what we've been doing. We've been taking a biographical look, you might say, at some of the Old Testament prophets, looking at the big picture of their messages and we've been going through the prophets chronologically. And today we come to the prophet Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And that is fitting because Malachi was the last prophet of Israel chronologically. Now the prophet Malachi, after him came a period of 400 years, which are known as the silent years. And during this period, there were no more prophets called by God to speak to the people on his behalf, but at the end of those 400 years, that silence was broken with the coming of a man named John the Baptist, and then of course with the coming of another man named Jesus of Nazareth. This book begins with these words, the oracle of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now that sounds pretty straightforward, right? The oracle of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, but here's why it's interesting. See, as we've been studying through the prophets, especially chronologically, here's what we've seen that Israel was a divided nation. There was a civil war after King Solomon. And the result of that civil war was that Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And as we've been studying through the prophets, what we've seen is that the prophets are generally divided into prophets to the northern kingdom and prophets to the southern kingdom. Another big thing, theme that we've seen throughout these prophetic books is the exile. So for the past few weeks, we've been looking at that period. Uh, at first, you might remember when we started out looking at the prophets, we saw that God was warning the people that if they continued in their ways, which you remember their ways included rampant corruption and gross immorality and, and defilement spiritually. God warned them, if you continue going in this way you're going in, then I will do whatever it takes to get you to stop doing these things and get you to turn back to me, even if it means allowing you to experience difficulty and hardship in your lives. If that's what it takes to get your attention, if that's what it takes to get you seeking me again, God says, I will do even that. And so after many warnings, as we saw, God allowed the Assyrian Empire to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and carry them off into captivity. 
And years later, he allowed the Babylonian Empire to come and conquer and destroy Jerusalem and Judah and take those people into captivity. But God made Israel and Judah several promises during this time, several incredible promises. His greatest promise was this, that the exile would not last forever and that he would be with them even in the midst of that difficulty. And he told them, hey, I'm gonna be with you in the exile and listen, this exile is happening for a purpose. The purpose isn't to destroy you. It's not to hurt you. In fact, God is saying, I am letting you go through this for a purpose which will ultimately be for your good and for my glory. And we see that that is exactly what happened. God promised that one day after the exile was over, he would unite them again. The two kingdoms would be united once again and he would bring that united nation back to the land of Israel and reestablish them in the land as one nation. He absolutely did that. That's what we see. Now, here in Malachi, this is an interesting time period because now we are looking at the time after the exile, after they've come back from the exile. And so where it says here in Malachi, chapter one, verse one, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, that's significant because it means that God has fulfilled his promise of reuniting the divided nation and bringing them back to the land and reestablishing them in this land, bringing them back from Babylon. So God kept all his promises and he was incredibly faithful and here they are back in the land. Now the story of how Israel got back from the exile back to the land of Israel is told in the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you wanna read the story, check out Ezra and Nehemiah. Basically, here's what happened. 70 years after the Babylonian uh, exile began, the Babylonian empire was conquered by the Persian empire. And the Persian king, a man named Cyrus, he allowed the Jewish exiles to return to their homeland and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. And the first group of people was about 50,000 people. And they were led by a guy named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel led 50,000 exiles back to Jerusalem with the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And it was at that time that God sent the prophets Zechariah and Haggai to the people there in Jerusalem who had gone back to reestablish the city, to rebuild the temple. And their word to them was to encourage them to be diligent, to not give up on the work, and to bring it to completion and finish building the temple. Again, by the way, next Sunday, you're gonna be reading about Haggai. So that's where Haggai fits in to all this. When the temple was created, we also, or sorry, when the temple was finished and completed, then another man came on the scene who you probably heard of. His name is Ezra. And Ezra was a scribe. What that means is that he was one of the few people who were tasked with the task of preserving and proliferating the word of God, the Bible. And so Ezra the scribe comes when the, when the temple's being completed and he gathers all the people together. He's bringing all his scrolls. Right now the temple's complete. He's gonna put the scrolls in the temple, the word of God. So he comes back, he brings all the scrolls. They gather all the people together and Ezra reads the Bible out loud to the people. Now remember, these people didn't have access to the word of God like you and I do. We live in an incredible time where we have incredible access to the word of God. And let me encourage you, never neglect that. Never take that for granted. Many of these people, they had very little access to it and many of them didn't know how to read. And so Ezra 
the scribe gathers the people together and they stand there and for like five, six hours, they listen to him read the Bible out loud to them. And it says that when they heard it and when they understood it, they wept aloud. They wept aloud. On the one hand, they were weeping for joy because they were hearing God's promises and the declaration of God's love and faithfulness to them. But on the other hand, they were weeping in grief because they realized that they had fallen short in so many areas. And that day they dedicated themselves to live according to God's word. They got rid of the things from their lives which weren't pleasing to God, which weren't in accordance with his will. And a few years later, another man came on the scene. You probably heard of him. His name is Nehemiah. He came about 14 years later. And he led another group of exiles back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And under his leadership, they rebuilt the walls of the city. And again, they would gather the people together. Ezra's still in town, right? They gather the people together. Ezra reads the word of God to them. And they're so inspired by the word of God that the people dedicate themselves to the Lord and they live according to his word. In our terminology today, you know what we would call this? We would call this revival. We'd say these people are on fire for the Lord. But here's what happens. In the final chapter of the book of Nehemiah, we see that things have kind of turned sour once again. Things have kind of turned south, right? After the work of rebuilding the temple is done, after the work of rebuilding the walls is completed, the people again start to slip back into their old ways. These same people who had cried and wept and made promises to God with tears running down their face that they would forsake all their idols and, and turn from their sins and they would live for God all the days of their lives. These same people who had made these promises and cried these tears, these same people who had come back from the exile they now once again begin doing the same things that had led to the exile in the first place. And the question is, what do you do with somebody like that? But maybe more important, what do you do with yourself when you are that person? How do we prevent ourselves from doing that? How do we keep the fire burning so we don't just fall back into our old ways all the time? And for those of us who, that, that ship has already sailed, right? That's already happened. For those of us whose hearts have grown cold, who have been complacent, where we look back and say, you know what, there was a time in my life when I was doing really well, where I was really passionate and on fire, but that's just not right now. How do we rekindle passion for God and for the things of God? How do we revive a complacent heart? Well, Nehemiah had an approach. I'll tell you what that was. You might call it the direct approach. Here's what it says at the end of Nehemiah 13. Uh, Nehemiah, speaking of himself, he says, I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat them and I pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God. Again, you might call this the direct approach to dealing with uh, sin and complacency, but God had a different approach than Nehemiah. Rather than punching people and uh, pulling out their hair, God sent them a prophet named Malachi to speak to them and to challenge them about their lukewarm hearts. Now, the first thing that God spoke to them about through Malachi was an assurance of his love, an assurance of his love. Malachi's prophecy begins with these words at the beginning of verse two. It says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. So Malachi is going to give a lot of correction to the people of Israel. But before God corrects them, he wants to assure them of his love for them. In other words, his reasoning, the reason he is correcting them, the reason he's telling them what's wrong is because he cares, because he loves about them. See, what we see in the Bible is that God loves us enough 
to pursue us. And this is part of God's glory. It's part of what makes him great and amazing and wonderful. And we see it throughout the prophetic books that God's glory is that he pursues sinners. See, God doesn't just sit by passively and say, hey, I'm here waiting whenever you're ready to come to me. No, he pursues us, which is really surprising, isn't it? I mean, because who are we that the God who manages the universe would take time to pursue us when we are doing things which are an affront to him, that he would do that? Now, I think about the parable of the lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. You know, it's been said that if a parable doesn't surprise you, if it doesn't shock you, then you haven't really understood it yet. So that's kind of a filter through which I encourage you to read the parables. If they don't surprise you, if they don't shock you, then you haven't really understood them yet. Jesus' parables, they essentially used what we would call today shock value in order to get people's attention and get them to understand something about God. Jesus begins this parable of the lost sheep. You've probably heard it before, but let me walk you through it. He asked this question. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? See, many of us, we miss the point of this parable. We think it's a kind of sentimental thing like, oh, hey, anybody would leave all their sheep and go chase after one. That's a normal thing to do, right? It's not a normal thing to do. Let me, let me explain this to you. We miss the point of this because most of us are not professional shepherds, but many of you work in business. So I want you to think about this from a business perspective because that's essentially what being a shepherd was, is like running a small business. It, shepherds don't think of their sheep as pets. They think of them as inventory, right? And so how many of you would leave 99 sheep out in the open to go after one who has gone astray? That's Jesus' question. And do you know what the answer is? The people who are hearing this for the first time, you know what they would say? How many people would do that? You know what they would say? Zero. Zero people would do that. Literally nobody would do that. No one in their right mind would do something like that. And here's why. Because sheep have no natural defenses. This is why you don't see like herds of of wild sheep just roaming around everywhere, right? Uh, Because sheep without a shepherd are sitting ducks. They're going to get uh, eaten or they're gonna hurt themselves or they're gonna wander off in a hundred different directions. Sheep need a shepherd. They're not particularly smart animals and, and they don't do things that are in their best interest and they have no way to defend themselves. They're not even good at running away when things chase them. And so to leave 99 sheep out in the open to go searching for one stray sheep who wandered off That's something that literally nobody would ever do. I mean, just think about it from a profit and loss perspective. Losing 1% of your inventory is a bummer, but it's just a minor setback, right? It's kind of the cost of doing business, we might say. Any shepherd would say, hey, no big deal. I've got 99 other sheep and they make baby sheep. So pretty soon I'll, I'll recover my loss. My business will be just fine. And look at what Jesus says next. He says, and when he has found that sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Again, who would do that? Zero people would do that, right? Like, have you ever, if if any of you have a dog and you've ever had that dog who like runs away and you have to like go and chase after him and tackle him and like get that leash on him, right? That's what we're talking about here, right? This sheep has wandered off. You had to spend 
a bunch of time chasing after this sheep, you know, trying to get him and then tackling him and then while he's trying to run away from you. You risk the lives of 99 sheep who were doing what they were supposed to do to go after this one annoying sheep who's running away. You know what a shepherd would feel when he finally caught that sheep? He wouldn't be rejoicing. He would be cursing, right? He would, be, he would feel angry. He would feel upset. He would feel frustrated. And then Jesus goes on, right? It just, understand, this is, this is, for the people who heard it, they're like, this story is just getting more and more ridiculous. And then he says, and when that shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and he says to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Again, the story just keeps getting more and more ridiculous. You know what you would do if you were a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and you spent all day chasing one sheep around? Well, you wouldn't come home and throw a party for your friends. If you did tell your friends, well, I spent all my day chasing this obnoxious sheep around, I finally tackled him and brought him home, they would kind of laugh at you, right? Like, yeah, that, that was probably not a good use of your time. And um, they wouldn't come over and, oh, let's have a party because you found your sheep. No. You know what kind of party you would have instead? You would have a barbecue. And at that barbecue, you would have rack of lamb. You'd have lamb chops. You have mutton stew. You would have lamb kebabs. So you would come home that night and you would say, the only thing that this naughty sheep is good for is to be slaughtered and to make me some meals. Because a, a wayward sheep is a liability to all the other sheep. He just made you waste half your work day and he put all the other sheep at risk. He needs to be put down so you might as well get a couple good dinners out of him. See, the people that Jesus was telling this story to, you know what they were thinking? As he tells this story, they're thinking, this is the weirdest story I've ever heard, right? Like, this is not uh, what shepherds do. And they would be thinking, what kind of shepherd would ever act like that? And then Jesus drops the hammer and his, here's what he says. In the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You know what Jesus is doing? He's surprising you and he's shattering people's assumptions about how God feels about wayward people and how God feels about sinners. You would expect that God's attitude towards wayward people and people who go astray and people who sin and backslide, you would expect that his attitude would be like that of a shepherd with a wayward sheep who would generally be ticked off and fed up. And Jesus says, no, God's different. God loves you. And here's how God shows his love for you because he pursues you even when you go astray. He doesn't just say, oh, fine, you know, whatever. If you wanna ruin your life, then go ahead. If you wanna risk your soul for all eternity, then see if I care, not at all. God persistently pursues you when you go astray. By his Holy Spirit, he speaks to you to convict you, to woo you, to, to bring you back to him. See, this is God's glory, that he is a loving God who lovingly pursues and blesses those who don't deserve it. See, in order for you to rekindle that fire of passion for God, in order for you to keep that fire burning, here's what you need. You need an assurance of God's love for you. Do you have that today? Do you have an assurance of God's love for you? This is where Malachi begins here at the beginning of the book. And look at what the people say in response though. They say, well, how has God loved us? 
This is a question which is often in our minds, but we rarely say it out loud because I think even we know that it's a bit of a ridiculous question. And yet it is there in our minds, isn't it? How many times have you said to yourself or had that thought, even if you didn't say it out loud, well, God, you say that you love me, but if you really loved me, then why did you let this happen to me? You say that you love me, but if you really loved me, then why am I in this predicament that I'm in right now? You say you love me, but if you really love me, then why are things the way they are in my life? Or we might just say, like the Israelites did here, I don't know, God, what have you ever done for me? That's essentially what they're saying. What have you ever done for me? And again, now from our perspective, especially over the last couple of weeks, looking at this whole arc from the you know, big picture view, It's a ridiculous thing to say. God has brought them back from exile. He's restored them. He has kept all his promises to them. They are so blessed and so secure at this moment. And they say, well, what has God ever done for us? And God responds, again, surprisingly, by patiently reminding them of what he has done for them. He uses this phrase, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now, don't get caught up on that word hated. Here's what that means. Just keep in mind what this is talking about. What this phrase means here in this context, the reason that God is is using here is this. He's saying, out of all the people in the world, I chose you. How have I loved you? Out of all the people in the world, I chose you and I placed my love upon you and I entered into a covenant with you and I have blessed you and I have remained faithful to you even when you weren't faithful to me. The point of this here He's reminding them of his actions in the past to show them an assurance, to give them an assurance of his love. Again, let me ask you, do you have an assurance of God's love for you today? Or do you find yourself kind of a little bit like the people of Israel here in Malachi, a little bit cynical and doubting whether God actually loves you? In the New Testament, whenever the apostles wanted to give us an assurance of God's love for us, You know what they did? They always pointed us to the cross. They always pointed us to the cross. They said things like this. God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. They say things like this. Greater love has no one than this, than that one would lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus called us his friends. See, the message of the gospel is that even though you were a rebel, even though you were a runaway sheep, God loves you so much that he left heaven in order to come to earth, in order to pursue you. He gave up a crown of glory and traded it for a crown of thorns. He gave up a heavenly throne and traded it for a cross. He became one of us. He suffered and died for us to make us his own. And it is by looking at the cross consistently and being, that you will be assured of God's love for you. And as you do that, the fire of passion for God will be kindled in your heart and will continue burning. The next thing you need in order to rekindle a complacent heart, secondly, is this. You need an awareness of your shortcomings. You need an awareness of your shortcomings. Because here's the deal. It is only when you understand the depth of your sin that you will be amazed and thrilled by the grace of God. It is only when you understand the depth of your sin that you will be amazed and thrilled by the grace of God. See, Malachi's prophecy is really interesting in its format. It's essentially built around seven questions. There are seven questions throughout this book that uh, God says something and the people argue back. 
right? The argumentative questions. These questions reveal their kind of doubting, discouraged, sinful hearts. God says, for example, you have despised my name. And they said, how have we despised your name? See, what these questions show us is that these people were somewhat oblivious to the fact that anything was wrong. They think that things are just fine when in fact, they are not just fine. And many of us can be the same way, especially when we're backslidden or complacent, right? We need to come to terms with our actual condition so that we can be thrilled and overjoyed by God's grace. It's only when you understand the depth of your sin that you'll be thrilled and amazed by the grace of God. And so with the people of Israel, one of the things that God does through Malachi is that he wants to show them where they have sinned and fallen short. And as you can see, they're very resistant to it. They push back, they argue, they don't think anything's wrong. Because see, these people, they weren't really committing big, blatant sins, right? It's not like they were murdering the president or, you know, hiding bodies under the floor or something like that, right? They had just become lukewarm and complacent. Here were some of the things that they were doing that we see from Malachi. One of the things is they were offering offerings to God, but they were offering sick and injured animals to God. So not their best, really kind of the scraps. Another thing, they had stopped tithing, tithing being that biblical requirement to give 10% of one's income to the Lord. Another thing is that they had stopped honoring the Sabbath, which was Uh, the biblical, again, requirement to take one day off from work to focus on worshiping God. Another thing is they were not upholding the institution of marriage. Even the priests were leaving their wives and not with just cause, but just because they didn't feel like being married anymore. And so the Lord, through Malachi, points these things out to them and tells them they are a big deal. So let's talk about that for a second. What are the things which lead to complacency? Because if one of the goals here is to say, let's not get to that place, and if we are in that place, how do we come back? Well, let's talk first about what leads to that. What leads to complacency? How does that happen? Well, with Israel, how did that happen? Well, we can see a couple things. How did they go from passion and enthusiasm that they had during the times of revival, where they were building the temple and they were building the walls, till now where they're backsliding and they're becoming complacent? And and there are a few things that we can see in this regard. Number one is that they neglected spiritual disciplines. How did they become complacent? How did they backslide? It started, we see, with neglecting spiritual disciplines. So if you look at what was going on in every period of revival, before the exile, during the exile, after the exile, here's what happened. We see it was always connected to a return to God's word. It was when they were studying and hearing and, and listening to and reading the word of God that revival started to take place. And that should just be so crystal clear for us, guys. When they heard the word of God, it stirred their hearts. It changed their lives. And for us too, spiritual vitality is tied to the word of God. If you make that a regular part of your life, if you read it on your own, if you go to your community groups and study together with your community groups, you will grow. You will grow. See, if you neglect it though, your spiritual vitality will suffer. Another spiritual discipline they neglected was the spiritual discipline of public worship. It says in chapter one, verse 13, Malachi tells us that the people were complaining and they were saying, Oh, going to the temple is such an inconvenience. They would say, we are so weary of worshiping. That's what it says there. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us of this. He says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together as is the habit of some. 
See, gathering for public worship, like we're doing right now, this is an important spiritual discipline. The things that we do every week together, you know what? They're not just to give you information. As we do these things together, they are shaping us into certain kinds of people. That's why doing it with regularity, doing it with consistency is so important because this practice shapes us into certain kinds of people who value certain kinds of things. So gathering for public worship is a spiritual discipline. Another spiritual discipline, though, that Malachi talks about a lot in his letter, in his book here, is giving of tithes and offerings. In chapter three, he says this, very famous phrase here. He says, will a man rob God? And yet you are robbing me. And they ask, how have we robbed you? And God says, by not giving tithes and offerings. The Old Testament required that a tithe, that is 10% of one's income, be given to support the work of the Lord in the temple. Now here in Malachi, God tells the people that they have actually brought a curse upon themselves by neglecting the tithe. And here's what he tells them. He says, you brought a curse on yourselves by neglecting this. And he says this, test me on this. By the way, one of the only places in the Bible where God encourages people to test him. Interesting. He says, test me on this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and meet all your needs. Now, one of the questions people often ask in this regard is they'll ask the question, as Christians, does this apply to us, right? So does the rule of tithing in the Old Testament apply to us as Christians who now live in a New Testament paradigm, right? We're no longer living according to the Old Testament law. Now, two interesting things to mention in this regard. Number one is this. The practice of tithing actually predated the law. It actually came about before the law of Moses. We see it all the way back in the book of Genesis with Abraham. Abraham gives a tithe to a guy named Melchizedek, who's a foreshadowing of Jesus, who's the priest of the Most High God. So the practice of tithing actually predates the law of Moses. Uh, Second thing to note on this is that the New Testament never talks about tithing, but instead of talking about tithing, the New Testament talks about giving. And it gives us, there are several verses on the topic, a lot from Jesus in in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, a lot on this topic. Let me just boil it down for you. Here are the principles that the New Testament gives for the practice of giving. It says that giving should be done intentionally, so it shouldn't be done under compulsion because somebody's manipulating you or twisting your arm or you know pulling on your heartstrings. It should be done intentionally. In other words, you should plan ahead to do it. Secondly, it should be done proportionately. So you know, even if you don't have a lot of money, maybe you have very little money, it should still be done proportionally. So like a, a percentage of what you have. So even if you don't have a lot, you can still give proportionally. Next is that it should be done cheerfully, right? It should be done cheerfully, not begrudgingly, cheerfully. Uh, Next, it should be done generously. So we don't want to ask the question, what is the least amount that I can get away with giving and have God not be upset with me, right? We want to give generously. Next is that we should give consistently. And finally, who do we give to? Well, in specifically, this is talking about giving to your local church or to reputable or and or to reputable ministries. In other words, the purpose of this is to fund the work of the church and to further the gospel and the community uh, and the, the furtherance of the gospel in the world. Now, so personally, I'll tell you this. I think that 10% is a good guideline. That's what me and my wife do. 
And I'll be really honest with you. I don't like talking about this topic. It's not my favorite topic to talk about. And you've probably noticed that if you've been coming for any time, that really the only time I ever talk about this is when the text forces me to. Because honestly, it makes me uncomfortable to talk about money. There have been a lot of people who have abused this topic and tried to manipulate people. And I want you to know anytime you come here that that's not gonna happen, right? That we're not gonna do that to you. But on the other hand, let me say this. If I were to never talk about money, then I would actually be doing you a disservice. I I wouldn't be being faithful to the word of God because the Bible actually talks a lot about money. In fact, Jesus himself talked a lot about money. He talked about it a ton. And, And according to Jesus and according to the Bible, how you spend your money is actually a barometer, a very accurate barometer of where you are at spiritually. One of the pastors in my life used to always say this, and it's always stuck with me. He said this, giving is not God's way of raising money. It's God's way of raising kids. And we're God's kids, right? So he says, giving isn't God's way of raising money as much as it is God's way of raising kids. God is trying to shape us and make us into certain kinds of people who have certain kinds of values. And one of the ways he does that is by saying, I want you to give in these ways, intentionally, generously, consistently, all those things that we just looked at. It's a very practical and very tangible way by which God is directing us uh, to invest in his work in the world and make that a priority to us. Now, another person that I've looked to over the years that I've always looked up to, he said this in this regard. And this is another thing that's always stuck with me on this topic. He says this, when you give, you are removing money's claws from your heart. When you give, you are removing money's claws from your heart. And and that's why it hurts sometimes, right? And I know that I've experienced that in my life. See, money and material things, they can get a grip on you. They can sink their claws into your hearts. And it's, it's very, you know, it's very easy where, you know, you think you're gripping onto something so tightly and you're not letting it go and you're controlling it. But pretty soon you realize that it's not just that you are holding onto it tightly, but that it has taken its hold on you as well. It's not just that you are controlling it, but it begins to control you. And one of the ways that we can set ourselves free from that, to destroy this materialistic grip that this material world gets on us, is by giving it away and releasing its claws from your heart regularly and generously. Now, another thing that Malachi says in this regard, as I mentioned earlier, is that the people were bringing sick and injured animals and giving them as offerings to the Lord. And, and the idea was this, well, hey, I don't need this anyway. Hey, this is, this is junk anyway, so I might as well give it to God. In other words, they were giving God their leftovers, their junk, not their best. And one final thought on this topic of giving is sometimes called first fruits giving. And the reason it's called that is because it reminds us that we wanna give God our first and our best, not just whatever we maybe have left over at the end once we've spent everything else on ourselves. See, the idea behind giving is this, that everything you have, everything I have has been given to us from God. And he asks that we give back some of it to him for his work in the world before we spend the rest, however we decide. And so one of the ways that we become complacent, one of the ways we become lukewarm is by neglecting spiritual disciplines. We can see that, um, that one of the ways we can avoid becoming lukewarm is by not neglecting these spiritual disciplines of the word of God, public worship, and giving. So the word of God, public worship, and giving are the ones that Malachi talks about. 
And, and the second thing we see here, how does one end up in a place of lukewarmness? You, you do it through compromise. See, they began to compromise morally. And one of the metaphors that the Bible uses to discuss or describe what happens to us when we begin to compromise morally is that of a callous. If you've ever learned to play the guitar, you know all about calluses. Because what happens is the first couple times you play the guitar, especially with steel strings, right? It makes your fingers hurt. Sometimes your fingers even bleed. But what happens is if you keep on doing it, you keep on playing guitar, you develop calluses on your fingertips. And after a while, that which used to cause you so much pain, you don't even feel it anymore because you've built up these calluses. And what the Bible tells us is that the same thing actually happens with our hearts. We build up calluses over time through repeated actions, right? And so as you begin to compromise on things, at first it bothers your conscience, it hurts, and you're so bothered by it. But after a while you keep doing that and you just find yourself used to it. You get calloused. And so what God is doing through Malachi is he's ripping off those calluses, right? So that once again, we can bleed again. So that once again, we can feel the awareness of our shortcomings so that we will be drawn to seek forgiveness and therefore be amazed and thrilled by the grace of God towards us. And the final thing to revive a complacent heart we see here in the end, and that is an understanding about Jesus, an understanding about Jesus. In Malachi chapter three, verse one, the passage we opened with, Malachi tells the people that soon God is going to send someone who will come and he will prepare the way for the Messiah, a forerunner, you might say. In chapter four, verses five and six, the final verses of the book, the final verses of the Old Testament, Malachi says that before the Messiah comes, God is going to send Elijah to prepare the way. Now, Jesus mentioned both of these verses and he said that they were speaking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Now, you're gonna read these texts in your community groups this week, so make sure you go to group. But in chapter three, verse one, Malachi says this about the Messiah. He says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. So he calls the Messiah the messenger of the covenant. It's interesting because when Jesus came, he established a new covenant. On the night when he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, at the last supper, it says that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And likewise, he took the cup and he gave it to them and he said, take and drink. And what did he say? This is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. What is the new covenant? In Jeremiah, Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeremiah talked about this thing which he called a new covenant. He said that one day God is going to establish a new covenant with his people, not like the old covenant which they had failed to keep. No, this new covenant will be different. This new covenant will be based on what God will do for us in order that we might be redeemed and in a relationship with him. And so now Malachi tells us when the Messiah comes, He's gonna be the one who will establish the new covenant. He's gonna be the messenger of the new covenant. He's gonna bring it. And when Jesus came, that's exactly what he did. His body broken for you. His blood shed to atone for your sins so that you could have new life. And he sealed the deal by rising again on the third day. And so in, in conclusion, I'll just say this. How do you rekindle passion for God when you become backslidden or lukewarm? 
by an assurance of God's love. Secondly, by an awareness of your shortcomings. And thirdly, by getting an understanding of Jesus and what he did for you. The message of the gospel is that you are more loved by God than you've, you could ever dare to dream. And my prayer for you today is that you would see that, that you would feel it, that you would believe it, and that you would fix your eyes on Jesus. And as you do that, that God would rekindle that fire of passion in your heart for him. Amen? Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would do that today. Lord, where we have grown uh, used to things, Lord, where we have lost that passion or fire that we might have once had. Lord, maybe there are some of us who have never experienced that in our lives. We've just always been complacent. We've never experienced that burning passion for you in our hearts, but Lord, we desire to. And Lord, I pray that today that's what you would do. For those of us who are doing well, Lord, stir that fire, fan those flames, we ask. But Lord, as we look upon you, as we see Jesus, the messenger of the new covenant, and we see Jesus, what you have done for us, how you have pursued us, and how you have saved us, Lord, would you rekindle that fire? Would you kindle it again? Would you fan those flames, Lord, that we might experience passion and dedication to you, having seen what you have done for us? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 